0: Hello, historians, I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and welcome to another episode of Women of Herstory, a podcast dedicated to celebrating women who have made or are making their mark on our society. Today I have with me Carolyn Gage, playwright specializing in reclaiming women's stories, we love that, specifically lesbian stories. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carolyn. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. I'm so excited to chat all things theater. I am a theater baby. So (laughs) let's launch right in. You specialize, like I just said, in writing non-traditional roles for women and shining light on the lives of lesbians whose stories aren't being told the way that they should be. What set you on this particular path of writing?
1: Well, there was sort of two things, Um, one was um, my mother was very active when I was a child and encouraging me to read and read early and she would go to the library with me and start pulling these books off the shelf and I'm like, you know, in school, the Dick and Jane stuff and there was a series of little orange biographies, and I'm sure that they're full of lies. You know, when I think of the mouth the Martha Washington and, um, but they were famous women, mostly wives of presidents, Dolly Madison, because it was the 1950s, famous right. women, wives of presidents. Um, but I remember one of the first was Pocahontas and it was intriguing. And, um, you know, so I was like in first grade reading biographies of women. And I just think that sort of set me on a path for life. And then the second thing that happened was uh, I was just really woke up from a deep sleep as did millions of women in the late 60s and the women's movement, uh, particularly the reclamation, like the Janssen textbook, History of Art, was like this thick, I mean, it's like a phone book. And when I was going through college, it had no women artists Ugh. I know right oh. and then but so suddenly there's all this scholarship and oh my god they're brilliant historical women artists and so on and uh you know so that was exciting it was suddenly that we were all waking up and like okay. they've stolen our history and it's accessible we can find it and uh and the internet really helped with that but that just really excited me like I want to be in that wave hmm. and By then, you know, my career was theater. It's like, and I'm going to write plays because they were, the lives of real women are very different from the narratives that are constructed, you know, by our colonizers, which is true, not just of men and women, but of anybody, indigenous Mm -hmm. or whatever. The colonizer, um, what is it? Until the lion learns to write, the hunter will control the story. It's like, um, so I was just like, yeah, the lion is going to write now. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was very exciting to me. Uh, and that so many of these women with astounding stories of resistance, especially mm-hmm. it's like, I could have used that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. And mm-hmm. as far as I knew, that happened to almost nobody. And then in the late 60s, it was like, oh, two out of three women. Mm-hmm. Good to mm-hmm. know why isn't this like, why don't we have a huge body of like, feminist plays where we write about that as much as men like to write about war, you know? Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that, that was, so those two things like the early, and I was playing with dolls very early in a, in a, I'm autistic, in an intensely autistic way. I mean, I don't know what other normal girls did, but I had 50 dolls, and they all had names and huge histories, like, and I did BBC miniseries with these 50 dolls. I, when I played dolls, I would go into an altered state for six to eight hours in the dollhouse enacting huge dramas and lots of um, violence. And, you know, and uh, I mean, of course, now I know, oh, autism, big bad. Like my mother had to take the dolls away in the summer. I wouldn't leave the house. So I just got small dolls and took them out in the woods and did the same thing. But... Um, so I believe I was playwriting. That was playwriting, um, basically. And so the themes of my life, autism, feminism, um, they were set pretty early.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. I feel like uh, for for me it in and in, in my uh, playing with dolls, I had, you know, like American girl dolls who already had their backstory,
1: right? Yes. They have
0: their book. They have their Mm -hmm. backstory and I would then a lot of times, uh, enact them playing with each other with their already established backstory. So that's so interesting that, um, and usually I feel like for me, like all my stuffed animals, right. All my stuffed animals, they had names, but all their backstories were linked to me you know, it wasn't yeah, their own yeah. backstory. Well, so that's course, yes. that's that's so interesting. Yeah, and
1: I I look back and my favorite doll, and I you know, I had dolls for a decade. Um, and I I think I was thirteen and my mother made me put them away. And I responded to that by dissociating mm. and just um trying to get out, you know. Mm. Um but yeah, don't do that. If you have an autistic kid, let let them do their thing. Um, mm. But my favorite doll was one I'd rescued from the neighbors. Her hair had all been pulled out. And I think she'd, you know, been written on with ink, and mm. she was a survivor. She clearly mm. abused, neglected, and they didn't want her. And I'm like, I'll take her. And uh, she was the heroine, and she always came through harrowing trials and triumph. And I looked back later, and she had a past that could not be spoken of. And at that time, I was a survivor of incest. I did not retrieve memories until I was of 33 or 32. Mm. And I'm realizing the center of my narrative was a survivor whose story couldn't be told. And she was also a lesbian. I didn't know what a lesbian was, but she had nothing to do with the males.
2: Mm. She
1: was a leader of the women. Mm. And I'm like, isn't that interesting? Like, I didn't even know my own history, but I was looking for the story that would validate what I could not see anywhere around me. And she was absolutely that pulled out hair and everything. She was a little warrior. It was Mm. like, you know, she didn't look like anybody else. She'd been through something and you just knew, okay, Mm. she's, yeah, she knows what's going on. Mm. And uh, she was my little avatar before I even knew who I was. Mm. There was integrity in the doll play I didn't have in my life. I just Mm. tried to look pretty and get popular boys to date me. Mm -hmm. My living life, my outside trying to cope, mask the autism life was just like, okay, what's normal here? Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'll try to do it and I'll try to do it really well. Mm -hmm. But when I was with the dolls, you could see what the real story was.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting because I feel like uh, we, we all, as adults, we tend to forget like how important like playing just playing and specifically with with dolls and what all those types of things can can represent in in watching um how people how someone plays with dolls how someone interacts with an avatar you know like it's it's so interesting we forget that that's An ability that we have when we're older I think so many times because we're told oh you or you're too old to play with the dolls you're too old to play with the this with the that it's okay to have your avatar it's okay to have your thing that brings you extra comfort whether or not it is quote unquote like childish or something that shouldn't be allowed because you'd mentioned that you had to put the doll away there's like why can't you just have, I mean, I've got a big giant stormtrooper helmet on my wall. Cause I, it yeah, brings yeah. me, I love it. I, I think it brings me to a place of, I can look at it. And it's, you know, it's obviously not the same as your association with, with your favorite doll, but it's things where like, when we get older, we're still, we yeah. should still be allowed to play and to explore and have but items also, of comfort. If you, have a,
1: if you have an autistic child, And, uh, you know, I was a high achiever, so I was diagnosed very late in life. Um, But if you have a child that is just hours and hours of absorption, and it doesn't matter if it's stamp collecting, or uh, often the the special interests of an autistic child are very specific, and you're just like, Oh, my God, that is not gonna, you know, uh, move the needle forward at all. And, um, in fact, The thing is, whatever our special interest is, we will be doing it 24 seven without pay, we will shut down the field. Hmm. Because other people are having a normal they're having pets and partners and trying to buy a house and meanwhile i'm in the dollhouse because nothing in the outside world gets it for me like that Mm. so when they try and discourage his kids because it's like time after time they'll take some weird strange obsession thing and you realize it turns into something in the adult world that's phenomenally lucrative Mm. and they make a name for themselves because like i say nobody else is packing in the hours right nobody else is incentivized like we are if it's we're it's a gift and the detail orientation and my plays, I've got a hundred sheets of paper in the trash for everyone that ends up in it. I, you know, I've got one play with two banker boxes full of historical notes, and I worked with that until you get it down to 120 pages, but it's like, mm-hmm. um, I, I just, the, it's the self-reward of getting mm-hmm. it right or whatever. It's stuff that I'd say 80% of the work that goes into it is kind of the below the iceberg, of the audience that's highly knowledgeable will suspect the level, the vibrational plane of the intensity of what you put into it, the Mm -hmm. compression and uh so you're like well that's a waste of time if only one percent is going to see it it's like but i'll see it but you'll see I'll it know it's there exactly. i will know it's there mm-hmm. yep yeah, and that they can't take that away from you yeah. no i yes if your kid if you're lucky enough to have a child with quote obsessions which we don't call them that anymore we say it's a special interest get out of their way Mm-hmm. Yeah, throw some money at that shit, you know. Like really, it's like this is making into
0: it. Lean this into it might keep
1: it. you in your old age, you know. They, they could well be supporting you with whatever that is, yeah. you know, 30, 40 years down the line. That's yeah.
0: yeah, I love that. I think that's so great. And that's such a um beautiful perspective, right? You everyone has perspectives bringing and to to bring into life, right? And I think having conversations like this one, where it's like just getting things like that out. Cause I don't know that I've ever actually heard someone articulate that before saying, let, let, let them have that focus, that thing. Because what's interesting is that if that type of inclination is shown in athletics, oh, yeah. nobody says anything. Oh, they're yeah. like, yeah, they're obsessed with baseball put all the money into it. But if it's something kind of obscure, that isn't necessarily mainstream accepted, right? Then- I feel like so many times people are are quick to say, "Well, that's weird." Have a normal, hyper-specific interest like football, and you're like, "But I don't have that interest. I'm interested in the stories I tell with my dolls. Let me tell the yeah, stories often, with my
1: dolls." It's often coupled with not not wanting to be in school because school is not really on your special interest. It's mm-hmm. like let them get a GED and then go to community college. Yeah. All the all the all the hotshot schools will take you out of community college if you're impressive enough. So it's like you don't really need to graduate from high school. Absolutely. You can go into a good college from the community college, save a barrel of money. But I mean, I feel like it's like, you know, again, this you've got some kid that's spending eight hours a day on something. You don't see how it's ever going to pay for itself. And they're wanting to drop out at 16 or 17. Watch that kid. That's going to be Steve Jobs, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah, because also the difference between, you know, someone having uh, like hyper, hyper specific focus in something that isn't necessarily academically related, right, or athletically related, Mm -hmm. um, perceived to be obscure, Uh, it, it, that's a big difference between someone wanting to leave school at that point, and then someone else who's just lazy, has no drive, has no focus, wants to drop out. And I think as a society, we've decided that if you don't want to complete education, no matter or high school specifically, right, because you can move on to something like community college where you can specifically go into what you're trying to work on. We've decided that if you have a GED, that means you're lazy and that you're not worth the time and that you don't care about anything, which everybody has different focus, different interests, just because you want to leave school at 16 to focus on this thing that you've wanted to do your whole life doesn't mean you're not worthy or, uh, productive or just a human, you know, I, it's so interesting though. We've decided what means you're lazy and, uh, you know, out in the outskirts and then what means you're productive and awesome. Like it's such a strange, black mm-hmm. and white thing that it shouldn't be It makes no sense it makes no sense
1: <laughs> also i think if you're passionate about something that's you're su- you're succeeding if i am mm-hmm. able to do something i'm passionate about it's always a success um and the way the world measures success i mean what does it mean mm-hmm. to succeed for me the, the masking like when i was trying to be a, a heterosexual housewife what does it mean to do that really well if I'm kind of a radical dyke? Do you right, know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Oh, score. Big score. <laughs> like, or to, you know, have learned to, to climb a corporate ladder with something that you have to go home and drink every night just to deal with it. It's like... Honestly. And ugh, it's like, yeah. So miserable. <laughs> just, yeah. What does it mean to um, succeed in a failure, in, in, in failing yourself? Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's really, you know, we need to, but somebody who's got blessed with a special interest and has found a way to do it mm-hmm. is just succeeding after succeeding after succeeding absolutely. on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, but I think for the parents, that's a, that's a, that's a tough sell.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. absolutely. I mean, it has to do with the, the idea of security, you know, but I think also some people don't necessarily have that there's so many definitions of success you know there's just so many even within each field there's so many different definitions of success within each field you can you know you your name doesn't have to be in lights to call yourself a successful actor your name you know it it there's so many definitions of it and and i also think at the same time there are people who thrive on the idea of i just go i sit at my desk i work 9 to 5 i come home and i Chill. And some people, that's their definition of success. And that's amazing. Congrats, but that's not for everybody. And hopefully, we can come to the general consensus as a society that we can all, if we're all happier doing what we like doing and being quote unquote productive in our own way, then we're going to be better as a people. (laughs) The happier you are, the better person you're going to be. So don't be miserable. Ugh. I
2: hate that. I hate
0: that. So it sounds like playwriting has pretty much come naturally to you.
1: I had a, I had a professor, um, Pauline Piotr, and uh, she taught really old-fashioned structure. As I knew I told stories and all of that, but you know, you you need you need some chops too. Mm. And it was almost formulaic. But she taught a structure that I can apply that anytime a play isn't working and you know, you put it up and it's mm. like, oh man, it's not working. Um, I have a structure from 35 years ago, freshman playwriting class. It's an amazing tool. I can go into any play and troubleshoot. And a lot of times people will be trying to patch up dialogue or this and that. It's like, it goes right to the structural root of the problem because a play, mm. A play doesn't have to have a happy ending but it has to satisfy has to satisfy very deeply and there are just structural things that need to happen and particularly in a play where you've got a two-hour framework certain things must happen at certain points it's very similar to a sporting event you know the best sporting event you ever saw it wasn't watching me and Martina and navratilova play tennis no it's where it's really evenly matched. It goes overtime and then overtime overtime, you know, it's tied. It's uh, the score someone's coming from way behind and then goes way ahead and then the other you know those kinds of things. it's the same thing. I mean play plays are like spectator sports. They're not films. And you, you that's why you have to have an intermission, which mm-hmm. is going away now and it shouldn't. People are tired an hour of watching a play they're going to get antsy if they don't have an intermission and i asked one of my professors why is it that we can watch two two and a half hour movies without intermission and he turned around like i was an imbecile and he yelled at me he said because a a live theater audience is working and i never forgot that Hmm. it's like yes and it is different and they do need a break they are participating in creating in real time an imaginary world with you and you respect that and you freaking let them get up and go to the bathroom and just take an emotional break. Like, whew, all right, back to act two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. intermission's going away. I have huge issues really? with that. There's yeah, there's a real neat, there's a, a tired audience. If you don't get their intermission, they're not they're not tracking. Uh it's like halftime. Mm-hmm. Try a football game with no halftime. Yeah. Yeah. They're not tracking. They're not they're tired. Um, yeah. and yeah. they need that break. And but I just love that I was blessed to have the right teacher and she was using a really old fashioned book. And when people would hire me for dramaturgy, uh, I'd go right to the structure and they usually didn't want to hear that. They I, <laughs> A lot of times people hire a dramaturg; they want to hear the play is brilliant. And it's like, no, this has got a serious flaw in it and it will never work. You can put the best actors in the world and it, it won't work because it's not doing the things it needs to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like me and Martina we can be interesting, fascinating women, but put us on the tennis court. Nobody wants to watch that game. Mm -mm. That is watching me collect balls, (laughs) chase balls, you know, yeah. That's what you, you know, but um, yeah, so that made a playwright out of me, just that one class. Uh, I felt like I could, I then had a product because it isn't just stage storytelling. Oh, let's just put it up on stage. It's just really like the sport. It it has a specific structure. It has to do certain things. And uh, I actually have a standard now where I know uh, maybe my themes aren't that significant, but in terms of story, suspense, momentum, Mm -hmm. I can tell if my plays work or they don't. And that's a gift because I find without a grounding in structure, you know, you felt strongly about it, or you've got a great character, and it just doesn't work. It's like mm, I don't know what to do. It's like, but I do, because this wonderful teacher. Um, so I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yeah. Wow. You know, I I like the the comparison drum. Like the reason we can sit through like a two hour movie without an intermission, and and it also, you know, I feel like so so much energy right we are we are water and electricity right and so when you are actually in a space with people who you can feel it you're not feeling your own emotions like you are um like okay Let me see how I can articulate this. Right. So like in a movie you watch and you cry because you're upset about your characters or, you know, it's, it's a much more of a removed experience, but when you're in a live theater, this group of people will never, ever be in the same room ever, ever again in the entire world. It just will not happen. You will never have that collection of people there again. You will never have that performance again. That is nothing ever happens the same every time because it's live. Right. And so you have all these energies and then the audience feels the character, right? You're, you're not necessarily going based on your own experiences. When you're watching a live play, you put so much of your own energy into each of these characters, each of these people that it is exhausting. That's why after well, you- And anything no. can happen.
1: I mean, it's like the difference between watching a tightrope walk that's filmed. It's on, it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you may actually, you know, it's probably on YouTube because it's successful. Mm. They don't tend to put things up with ghastly endings. Mm. But you're in a theater and good actors are doing a tightrope walk and good mm. play. The stakes are high. And the sense of like, I could be here tonight with all these people when there's an accident with no net. Mm-hmm. You feel that it's like, um, n- 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 you know, it's just like with the sporting thing, like, <gasps> no, like, are you like, yeah, yeah, go, go, you know, and, um, and and when it's in the can, all, they could still fall, but it's different. Y- you know, mm-hmm. you, you were not there when it happened and mm-hmm. saw the energy change and suddenly everybody's running around and, Watching it later, it's not the same. It's uh, mm-hmm. you're part of it if you're there for that, and it it does put you on the edge of your seat mm-hmm. um, for sure. Mm-hmm. I I love live theater, and people are like my early career, especially if they were gonna like considering dating me. They were like, "So you must be? Are you looking to move into film?" I'm like, "Never," which is <laughs> like it was a commitment to poverty and obscurity, and I I could just see their eyes glaze over at the party as they moved on, like. <laughs> loser, you know, just like, yeah, you know, but it's like, no, I'm, I would say I'm too good to do screenplays. <laughs> yeah,
0: Hot good. takes with Carolyn Gage. <laughs> I know, I know.
1: Well, you know, I, I just, I just lead with the autism. I feel like they they'll just go oh that that's her autism
0: <laughs> no i totally get it i totally get it you know i like i said earlier i'm a i'm a theater kid i'm a dance kid i'm i'm definitely of the live performing arts i just love them so much and i understand completely that that's basically i mean i've i've signed my <laughs> i'll be living in poverty forever <laughs> and i'm totally okay with it because you know i i'm not saying i wouldn't do film tv any yeah, of that people but need my- you
1: like like they're scoping you for a potential partner they're like yeah. so are so are you going to be teaching <laughs> you're like no i just want to dance and they're, then they just oh wait
0: there's someone across the oh room God. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, oh, you, you're, you dance, you It's a dance okay. hobby, mm-hmm. hobby. It's oh. a hobby. And I'm like, yeah, I do it 60 hours a week. Right. Right. Where I'm like, oh no, I, yeah, I've dedicated my whole life to, uh, to this, uh, this I, you know, I'm like, I've put in more hours at the studio than I did at my own home. Like, I'm pretty sure I was around my, actually not pretty sure, hundred percent sure that I spent more time at the dance studio with my with all my dance teachers than I did with my family you know I'm like yeah okay I put that much work into my hobby no like don't minimize it just because it's not a six-figure paycheck you know that's so people we, don't should, we should we should we should have a
1: whole club of people we just go to the parties <laughs> you know you tell me what you do and usually drop what you make I'm like wait are you telling me that you spend most of your day doing something that's just for money? Yeah. Yeah. For money and you hate it? <laughs> yeah, really. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. You got a life coach or something? <laughs> you no, know, like I know. A friend of mine would just say she say there's all kinds of paychecks and I mm-hmm. love that. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of paychecks. And actually the monetary one is often not the one that will really save you yeah, save your life if
0: you're in the crunch, I mm-hmm. think. Absolutely. What do you hope that people get from reading and/or seeing your work? Well, here's the
1: beauty of live theater: is like you're creating an alternative reality in real time and space. Mm. But you aren't in film. They can get up and go to the bathroom and have their boyfriend yell at them or whatever. You know, (laughs) in theater, it's like we're collectively doing this thing together. And for once, you know, welcome to Planet Autism. I control the narrative, which I Mm. never do in real life, and I hope to generate an alternative paradigm to patriarchy using archetypes that are heavily censored, empowered female archetypes. And that for one or two hours, they live with the vision that many feminists have in our hearts of like, Mm -hmm. oh, it could be like this. You can actually think like that. You can say things like that out loud, you know, like that it's a, it's, um. I am creating worlds that are heavily censored and mm-hmm. archetypes heavily censored. And I want to, I feel like um, audiences brought into that world, um, they just, the lights come up and they clap and where's my coat and I have to pee so you wait for me in the lobby and all that. But something remains. Mm. You know it was an alien abduction and they're kind of amnesiac about big parts of it but they were abducted for two hours mm. and they're they're kind of not quite this something happened up there you know and they're not quite the same and maybe they'll be in a situation and suddenly they're like hey fuck you yeah. and then they're like what Oh, alien DNA must have kind of you know mm. that before the abduction. I didn't talk like that, and so I kind of feel like that's what live theater can do. Film does not do it yeah. in any to to the same degree. The pow, the power of live theater mm-hmm. is just incredible because uh, yeah. you're in yeah. that world. You're in that world. It's real. Mm-hmm. That's reality for two hours, and. Um, And it, it has such incredible potential for transformation. Mm. So that's kind of what I try to do is I try to get them to, yeah, like Caroline Casey, the astrologer says, uh, imagination lays the tracks for the reality train Mm. and suddenly I'm laying it into territory that's spectacular. And hopefully after the play is over their train switches tracks a little bit and they're a little less compliant, a little more aware, a little more mm-hmm. in touch, a little more wider range of possibilities for their life, mm-hmm. dreams for their daughters, you know?
0: Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I love that. That's so, su- that, that's such a good analogy. Like, you. A- they've been an alien object abduction for a couple <laughs> yeah. hours i love that so much because well, they so- say that
1: the people with the alien abduction they say they're they're different they're diff- they don't know what happened they don't have memory of it but they're but different something's with
0: different that. yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and and that feeling like i've i've never been able to articulate like what that feeling is because there's um you know they I've, I obviously I've, I'll say it again and again, and again, I love theater. I love live theater. And the amount of times I've left a show being like, Ooh, okay. And you're like, not totally sure what just happened, but I think I need to call my brother. Like, or you're like, I think I need to call my aunt because I don't know why I just have this feeling that I need to. And the amount of times that that's happened to me after seeing a show that for no, other no logical reason that I could articulate um so you you leave and you're like there's I, I think I need to talk to this these people right now or like I need to not be around anyone and I need to just like sit with myself for a minute because I'm not sure and I need to process that, and that then-
1: is the best thing when your show is over and there's no applause Ooh. And you just, for me, it's like, count the seconds, because those are the gold stars. Mm. And the longer it is, because they're not ready to be here yet. Mm -hmm. They are not, they're like, um, you know, they're staying with the play. The furniture has been rearranged in their brain. They are not ready to like, oh, that was a lovely performance. They're like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, that's a slice of reality I was not ready for, you know. And I love that silence Mm -hmm. when, you know, it's the, it's so time for them to clap. And in the old days, I used to start clapping like, come on people, that's the end of the play. And then I realized they know damn well it's the end of the play Yeah, and they are not ready. And, and then I had that happen to me with a, I think I saw it was the Harlem dance theater and they Mm. were, I think it was, they were doing this Lizzie Borden thing, but my issues with my mother were huge. But anyway, like she's dancing with the ghost of her dead mother and I'm, Riveted. I'm like, I am like just files are dumping, like, you know, and the lights come up, and I don't care. I don't know what that is, but I'm like, the stage is empty. I'm still there. So I'm just watching the stage. People are crawling over me and making suggestions that I should get up and move. And I'm just like, no, you know. <laughs> uh, and I did that for half of intermission, I was not available you yeah. know for anything else I was in that dance mm-hmm. I was like completely like I was I think I was changing mm-hmm. I believe that I was transforming and it was mm-hmm. just like go and fucking step over me I am not
0: <laughs> I won't be offended just walk around me walk around I'm me. not
1: going to be <laughs> in your world for a while and I'm not <laughs> going to get out of your way. so you will have to step over me I know I remember that was just a really blatant example it was what it was 10 minutes after it ended and I'm still like just, and I had a play where uh, there's an attempted onstage child suicide from homophobic bullying. And this woman came to judge it for um, some big award. And so I knew who she was, you know, we all know who she is and we're watching her, like, you know, she liked it, she liked So then everybody's left the theater and she's still sitting there. And I'm like, <laughs> so I go introduce myself and, you know, Yeah, autistic people trying to schmooze. That is a sad sight. So I'm trying to do that. And she just turns and says, My son um, killed himself. And she said, When I came into the theater tonight, there's a a noose that goes up at this summer camp on the flagpole. So you know, it's act Mm -hmm. one. The noose goes up. You're like, Yeah, somebody's head's going to be in that. Mm -hmm. And she was like, She said, at the beginning of the play, I thought, Oh, I'm in the wrong play tonight. And when she told me that, and I said, I'm so sorry, I think you were in the wrong. Theater, And she said, no, because in my play, a successful intervention is modeled. The lesbian counselors take this girl, let her know there's not a damn thing wrong with being lesbian. And they, you know, there's so a lovely, these people are sick, not you. Um, but uh, I just remember she couldn't move. It was mm-hmm. the play that could have saved her son's life. It was the model of a different reality. Mm-hmm. He, he was not gay, but he had schizophrenia, and he was treated. He was bullied a lot, and mm-hmm. but I remember she wouldn't, couldn't, she couldn't get out of receipt, mm-hmm. and you know she nominated. Uh, it was American, wait, uh, Atka. It was the American Theatre Critics Association. Mm-hmm. It's the top theater award of theater outside of New York. She put that play up for that award wow. and it was done in a tiny women's theater. And I was up against Steppenwolf and and I just, re- when I saw the who I was with, it was like, I just remember her sitting there and she's like, that was some shit. Mm-hmm. I saw some shit tonight. Yeah. Wow. But I yeah, remember, I it, yeah. yeah. I love it when people, um, when people are transformed by yes, your work. Yes, that.
0: yes, yes. This actually even makes me think of, um, bringing it back to Charlotte Cushman, um, when they did Oliver Twist and um, she was cast as Nancy. And so basically in the theater world, as you know, you're, you obviously know this, Um, but at that point specifically if you were cast as the sex worker that meant you were like lowest on the totem pole you were getting like the dregs of the roles and they were trying to ruin your reputation and then charlotte goes out and comes and just completely revolutionized the role and made people they didn't even realize they were rooting for the sex worker like well, the, one of the things I found a, a review from the
1: 1800s, I think it was after I wrote the play and it was great because they described her first entrance as Nancy Sykes and she studied these people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't really know anybody of that poverty, degraded, drug addicted, prostituted. You don't, you know, you, you have your own idea of what that entrance looks like. She was down there in Five Corners studying these women. She comes in with a hat that's like disgusting, you know, beat up, greasy, you know, just filthy. And she, there's a peg and she misses it five times, which isn't even funny. Do you know what I mean? It's just like Mm. fucked up, like Mm. heroin or something. So she misses it. And then she sits down with her walking stick and she's just observing things and she puts the end of it in her mouth. You know, like nobody, you know, just like a, and just starts kind of gnawing on it. Mm. And I just thought I would never come up with that. But as soon as I was reading, it it was like, oh my God. And you just kind of get the vacancy. Mm. They're like, oh fuck, I can't even fucking, my fucking Mm. hat, you know? It was like, it just, to me, there was like, it was just two gestures that they reviewed that, but it was like the hopelessness. Mm. And the utter, you know, it's like, why get out of bed? Why, Mm. you know? there's, you know, oh God! Look, my hat won't even go on the peg, and and then that wood thing. I'm like, I'm thinking drugs. I'm like, that's just drugs. Yeah. But I, that was the le- and and so here are people. Oh, like here's the whore. Yeah. And then that happens, and they're like, I've seen these women. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. this is you know only they're seeing them for the first time because it's a character on stage, just like. That's not what a prostituted woman's supposed to look like. But deep down, they're like, oh, I've seen them on the street corners. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. sunk in poverty mm-hmm. and often mental illness or a drug addiction. And that's what she was putting on the stage. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, um, and also when she was killed, mm-hmm. she's killed mm-hmm. off stage, but she crawls back on cross eyed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, that's funny almost. it's not it's traumatic brain injury yeah and she's like bill i was like that would upset me so much like that's a real head injury like oh fuck that's like oh my god i you know because she's the beautiful prostitute being beaten to death it's like no she's like yeah you know i just i it was a level of realism that um people Mm -hmm. couldn't look away from Mm -hmm. it was like This is what we're we're talking about, being beaten to death. Absolutely. You know, and and to to her dying breath, Mm -hmm. she's like believing in this man, you know. (sighs) I know, right? I just felt like, yeah, she rocked New York with that shit because it was in the the devil's in the details. Mm -hmm. And I think most actresses would be like, well, that gnawing on a walking stick, how's that going to affect the audience? She's like... Um, I don't really care because that's what these women really look like. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's the thing is it's, it's not about, there was a a review that I had read um, that was like some, basically something about how like she left every part of herself outside. She only kept parts of herself that were or for each character that she was ever portraying, she only held on to the parts of herself that would fuel the character in her performances, which is incredibly hard to do. I mean, it is so freaking hard to do that. And, you know, but when you do that, you're not trying to be a different character and you're not still being yourself. You're being the parts of yourself that identify with that character. And, and I just, I, I think that is so powerful in, in being able to like change the perceptions, the perceptions of the people in your audience, right? Abducting them for two hours, helping them to do the same thing that you're doing, which is bringing parts of yourself into a character into characters you write, into the women that you're bringing into back into the spotlight and telling the right stories and telling the actual truths of who they are. And it helps bring the audience along and be like, Oh, I have a lot more in common with these people than I would have ever thought that I do. And that's such the beauty of, of live theater. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Have you ever doubted yourself? Constantly. Constantly. Well, I think
1: that, um, um I, I mean, I think that, you know, if you're an artist, you're in a constant process of refinement, recalibration, um, purifying, if you will. I think you're constantly doing that. And to do that means you interrogate, you know, you know, does that still belong here? Does that, is that something I need to get rid of? Could I do that better? Or like, um, you know, was, yeah, I, I think that uh, doubting yourself is a is um good and you know you just when I really doubt myself sometimes I need to go in and change the work and sometimes I'm like no they were wrong like you know we were talking about that theater guy earlier mm-hmm. that you know like people criticize your work it's like well, what do they know and sometimes it's like oh yeah they they do know and then mm-hmm. sometimes oh, there's a bunch of white boys mm, yeah no and sometimes you know when I know there's a famous opera star, Nellie Melba, and she was performing as a child, you know, and singing. And her little girlfriend from school just couldn't wait to come up to her and say, Nellie, the whole time you were singing, I could see your drawers. I have thought of that story so many times because I'll put a play up and someone just can't wait to, t- I could tell that that actor didn't really smoke in real life. And at first I'd just be like, seriously, because you know some play i've turned myself inside out for and then i just was like when that little girl said nelly i could see your drawers the whole time She fucking dying of jealousy you know it Mm -hmm. you know it it's just like i could hardly stand that because you were so damn good Mm -hmm. and i feel like when they tell me that they could see my drawers the whole time i'm like gotcha didn't i Mm -hmm you saw yeah you could not you can't even deal with your feelings right now can you you just gotta come over here and pee on my trees so i mean i forget what the question was that you asked but oh a doubting yourself a lot of times i think in my earlier days it would be like all right i I'm have to take that actor side we're gonna work on that smoking and now i'm just like you are really jealous about something. Now what is it? Mm. That actor probably blew you out of the water or mm. you know something like that, mm. you know, or the subject of, of sexual abuse survivors has right. triggered them. They do it especially, you know, in my plays where survivors turn the tables and stuff. Right. That is when I get the I could see your drawers comments right. so much. Mm. And it's because they just can't make their peace with the play. They're they're you know yeah. yeah, I had a, um, a, a a old teacher and he had seen uh, Streetcar when it opened in, on Broadway and he was a young man. It was the war and or post-war and all that. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as a man, he beats his pregnant wife. And he said, like, he was just like ranting all the way out of the theater, like for blocks to his wife about it was the most disgusting play he ever saw. It was blah, blah, blah. And he said he got about three blocks down and he stopped and he was like, that's probably one of the greatest plays in the American stage. And I thought, yeah, don't don't listen to, talk to people a couple of days after if it's a really powerful play, because I've never forgotten that story either. Like mm-hmm. he was triggered. It was, you know, Tennessee Williams is a level of realism that uh, we were really protecting ourselves from, you know, that kind of situation. And then there's a rape at the end of it. and. Mm-hmm. He was just like, well, this guy's wrong. This get me, you know, blah. yeah. It's like, well, that yeah, that's welcome to.
0: welcome to what happens in
1: life sometimes (laughs) like
0: not not all theater you know there is value in the like pomp and circumstance and the like the the jazz hands shows and those are great those have absolute value but then there also is there has to be shows that are so, so real that you're so mad after you know like you have to let yourself feel all those things and not criticize the writing in it because then it probably not that if you feel that deeply, like give yourself a day <laughs> and then be well, like, and
1: I also think that a powerful play often it, the audience is left with the problem that oh, play yeah. ends. Nobody's gone to prison. You know, she, uh, she's lost her, but she's the one that's taken to a mental asylum. I think it's mm-hmm. been a long time and that play certainly deserves criticism and another look at it. Um, Tennessee Williams was very turned on by, yeah, um, I think Stanley Kowalski, frankly, but um, I, I think that it's um, the problem. Mm-hmm. M- my professor was left with a problem and he wasn't used to that. And I think a lot of really good plays put the ball in the audience's court at the end. And that's why you leave just so disturbed and have to say, you know, I could see your underwear the whole time. Mm-hmm. like that's gonna that's gonna somehow nullify right the weeks of rehearsal and the intent you know but it's like i won i won i saw your underwear i won
0: i could tell you don't really smoke i won You know yeah where it's like what's the use in those those aren't constructive those aren't even actual like real things to be talking about you know such as life you know (laughs) What's the point of saying that that doesn't do anybody any good other than probably make you feel a little better because you got one somewhere. Yeah, on someone? Clearly.
1: Like, I mean, you know, Nellie Melba singing at age 10 was probably clearly a genius. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, well, I saw your underwear, so that doesn't count. Like. <laughs> <you know? laughs>
0: So you obviously do a lot of research on the historical subjects of your shows. Have you come across any information in the process that was particularly surprising for you?
1: Well, when you research the lives of historical women and you're called to write it, I don't know, it's a a certain vibrational plane, you do come across astounding things that often feel like the key to the whole thing. Mm and um that's always a moment it's like the universe is rewarding you it's like Mm. all right you've been such a good girl here's your treat (laughs) but um yeah and there's often like some small moment that cracks open the whole thing and um I just recently finished a play about the Texas tower shootings in 1966 at the University of Texas Austin Mm -hmm. it was the first mass shooting as we understand it because of course mass shootings with indigenous people are like right. you know, old news but it was the first kind of contemporary mass shooting right. and um the woman i was writing about claire wilson it was an interesting thing like I, she had been shot um you know in the hip she was eight months pregnant and she survived it but she lay out on the south mall nobody would come rescue her because mm she was in the line of fire Mm -hmm. and the guy was not taken down for 90 minutes. So she, people watched her Mm. in this hundred degree heat. And, um, but, um, she just a little thing in an interview, like that when she went to the ER, she was insisting she'd been shot in the arm and she was lucid the whole time and, and never had any lapse of memory. She has complete recall. And I thought, I've just built the whole character around that. She's bleeding out. She knows the baby's dead. She tells people the baby's dead. Um, and it's a massive, I mean, it's exploded her pelvis. She's got bone fragments all over her abs. And, you know, and she's insisting she's only shot in the arm. Mm-hmm. And I'm a control freak. And I thought that's a manageable narrative. Mm. That's a, if you're trying to keep yourself alive, that's a manageable narrative. Yes. Like uh, my whole abdomen's been exploded is kind of like, and I'm bleeding out. That yeah. is not.
2: Mm-mm.
1: And I thought that's an interesting, that's interesting. And she did survive it, hmm. but it's kind of like, I'm going to be all right. Cause I've just been shot in the arm. It's like, you know, you know, you're lying right. there You're and the blood is fuck, you know? And I just, so I built the whole character around that. It told me a lot about who she was and it's just like, And in the same breath, she's also telling this person, um, if they come to get me, tell them I'm type A. So I'm like, yeah, dad, baby, telling people your blood type and then, but it's only a flesh wound. And it's like, you know, but I just remember just that little moment thinking, there's so many things about that woman I know from that insist and she would demanding that they not cut her clothes off. You don't need to do that. This is my Mm -hmm. favorite dress. I'm only shot in the arm mm-hmm. and they're just looking like, you know, your whole backside's missing. Are you, are you crazy? You know, like, I know it's like, um, but yeah. And so a lot of times, because, you know, if you're a playwright, that might be something you just be like, well, that's an odd thing to say. But for me, it was like, what? Yeah. what is that about? And it's like, you know what that's about.
2: Mm-hmm. Pick a narrative
1: that is going to support what you're trying to do
2: Absolutely. and who
1: gives a fuck if it's real or not. Yeah, just hold on to it, you know, so I don't know. Um, But that's the most recent example. But yes, there's little things that surprise you in real life, all the time Mm -hmm. um, that are just little gems that you can build so much.
0: And then little gems where you're like, how was I not told this when we were studying yes. this particular war in school? Yes. Like, yes. how come I didn't hear about Nancy Wake being a World War II spy and being freaking amazing? Like, yeah. yeah, people through to to save them. Like, how did she was so crucial in the success? And you know, how did I not? How were?
1: And the ones I we not do hear about, like Anne Frank, because she's a child and a victim um, and doesn't survive. But it's like she's clearly lesbian
2: mm.
1: in her journal
2: mm-hmm. oh my
1: god she's totally lesbian
2: mm-hmm.
1: how did how did that part not get well of course her father had taken it out and it was the unedited diaries later but mm. it's like um i think that personally i think it's a big part of the story yeah huge, a huge part, part. Of the story.
2: huge yeah.
1: and i remember going to that house when i was 16 i was on a little college high school tour in Amsterdam, we went to see the house and she had cut out pictures of Deanna Durbin, who was kinda like Shirley Temple, kind of a contemporary, a little older. She had pinups from newspaper all over her bed and and they're not guys. I mean, she was like, she had pictures of women over Mm -hmm. on the wall above her bed and that, and I, again, the power of theater, it's like, here's this girl in, in absolute hell. And she's got pictures of Deanna Durbin, who was, yeah, mm-hmm. Judy Garland, contemporary, up on her um, wall. What did that mean to her?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Did she think someday I'm going to do that or I'm going to meet Deanna Durbin someday? Mm-hmm. Or like, how much did that really f- keep her going? Mm-hmm. And like, boy, Deanna Durbin. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I just think like that, yeah, that's, and then you find out she's lesbian. I'm like, Deanna Durbin. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
2: Mm -hmm, You know, mm
1: -hmm.
0: so I don't know. I I just think, yes, what they tell you, what they don't tell you. um... It's very much to make sure that certain people continue to feel like they have every opportunity in the world and they could do whatever they want. And then everybody else is going to be limited to figure A Five sentences in the textbook. You know, mm-hmm. it's very deliberate who they choose and then what part of the story they tell. You know, it's so, it's so interesting. Um, that sort of uh information delivery service, if you will, right? It's just very much these are the stories that fit the power construct that we have established.
1: But also we'll like there's There's like archetypes, and like uh, reading the historical record of Joan of Arc, and she's so documented because there was all these trials, and then there was this trial after she was dead, talking to everybody who ever knew her in any capacity, and it's like uh, the the real not wanting to wear women's clothes, literally dying for not wanting to wear women's clothes, which was you know related to sexual assault, but uh, alcoholic father. Who um, basically co- told her she was a slut a lot, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. A very contemporary situation, major eating disorder, severe eating disorder to such a degree her soldiers would describe what she ate a day, like one piece of bread. That's enough to make you hallucinate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like, but you're looking at her, it's like, oh, she's a little butch dyke with an eating disorder because there's um, at least emotional incest and probably other kinds. Her father. Her father's drinking issue was documented Mm -hmm. in his behaviors. Um, And I'm like, I know that girl. I think I might be that girl because Mm -hmm. I know the archetypes in lesbian community. Mm -hmm. And it's this scrawny little butch. She's got a leather jacket, two sizes, too big, steel-toed boots. And she's playing pool and she's so tough. And you just go, oh, honey, where's your mother? (sighs) You know, just so tough and really not, you know, Mm -hmm. just really. Um, And I just feel like because lesbian archetypes aren't known to people, Mm -hmm. they're discounting this like, oh, okay, she doesn't eat very much or she's like, yeah, her father seems to drink a lot or you know, and they're not putting it together. And they're not seeing, I know this girl, Mm. you know, and also she was deeply in love with a girl they used to sleep together. And that's documented. And then um, her Best This girl, uh, and, and Joan, meantime, her father set up a arranged marriage for her. She takes them to court. She does all kinds of stuff women do not do, especially mm. teenage girls, because uh, she's staying true, and her girlfriend gets married. Oh, she joins the military. It's like, I know so many women out of high school, fell in love with a straight girl, and went into the military. That's an archetype. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, it's 1530 or whatever, and I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> incest, you know, crushed out on a straight girl, betrayed, yeah, yeah. hugely betrayed. She I broke my engagement. You you know, all the, you know, mm-hmm. I was just like I know this girl. And um, so a lot of times that's what happens is these details are all chopped up and in different places because they don't have a sense of the archetype, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and then for me, it was just like, oh my, I, I know a dozen young women like this, Yeah, um, same story. So that's annoying because the empowered sexual older woman, the this, the that, there's all kinds of archetypes that are disallowed mm-hmm. where women are concerned. Mm-hmm. And, and so those details, like Rachel Carson, Rachel Carson never was with the man and she slept with her college professor, she slept with her agent, which is a big reason why she was placed so prestigiously in the Atlantic Monthly and on and on. Um, yeah, she, she really curated who she slept with and it was very helpful for her career wise. And, and, you know, the, she's sort of taught like this spinster woman who's so in the world of science. Mm. It's like, oh no. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You're like, that's you not know, a, it,
0: nope, that's not what it is. But yeah. that's an
1: archetype that they, you know, it's sort of like serious scientist, hot mama. Mm. You know, like there's just, they can't. And I feel really angry that, you know, so much lesbian history is missing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the archetypes of older women who find their mission late in life or their voice late in life. Um, yeah. Yeah, that sort of make you want to feel like in theater after 35, your life is over.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, you know, it's even even for like, obviously not to the same degree, but for, you know, there's, I mean, I feel like until The Prom came out, that musical, that recent musical, there wasn't like lesbian leads in a musical. I I have one. I have a lesbian (laughs) musical. I have several.
1: But yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the one I wrote is about Babe Diedrichson, was called, do we say, Miss, Mr. It? I mean, that's how the press would refer to her. And she was very masculine. She was super butch. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, I, I remember one of the top theater critics in Arizona, you know, I think he came to see a workshop of it or something, but he said, You have subject matter here that's completely unsuitable for musical theater. And I'm like, No cleavage, no high heels, right? masculine woman athlete and a chorus that looks like the smith college rugby team is mm-hmm. that is that what you're talking about here wow. yeah and that was what he was it was kind of like we were talking about the cushman play where she mm-hmm. talks to the audience it's like i think that um interesting yeah that's a, that putting the lesbian on stage for somebody who's done seven thousand Fosse fossey shows and you know the chorus line and the cleavage and all that wow. And they're confronted with a lesbian musical i think there's a real sense of discomfort
2: yeah.
1: and a sense of i don't know how to direct this and also a sense of i don't think i can cast this
2: mm.
1: because you think of the chorus for a musical those women are going to show up with their headshots and their resumes it's like can we make them look and move like the smith rugby team can mm. we decolonize them yeah enough to commit to playing this. Mm -hmm.
0: And what's interesting is on the other token, there's there, you know, like, (laughs) like Eugene O'Neill either wrote spinsters or prostitutes, spinsters and sex workers. Those were the only two roles he ever wrote for women in his plays. I mean, I think with the exception of like two, but like Iceman cometh, the only women are sex workers who are vile they're the the way they're written are just vapid empty people and they're just the and they're always dressed in boobs out and high heels and it's like there's there and 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 it's it's very it is very frustrating the
1: same thing with like uh uh, tennessee williams the women that he wrote were Mm -hmm. I, I think they were kind of pathetic drag queens. Honestly, I feel like mm. his his notions of gender came from right. intense, intense gay male culture. Mm-hmm. And so when he was writing women, he was writing these men. Um, mm-hmm. Because I don't see, I don't see women that I know Mm-mm. or relate to in Tennessee Williams. And then these monster mothers. That's a big trope in gay male theater. Torch Song Trilogy does it. And you know, it's like, Kaja Fall does it. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, but yeah, there are limited archetypes, just such Mm -hmm. limited archetypes.
0: It's unfortunate. I'm even thinking about like, um, angels in America, which I'm, I love that. I love that show. I think it's a beautiful show, but it's also, I'm looking at it, you know, differently right now as we're talking and i'm like examining how these women are are horrible
1: yeah and you horrible. know actually my issues with that play just don't even go that deep it's like i think it was tony kushner's first play it was workshopped on the west coast before it went east but he's writing his first play and it requires the ceiling to break and an angel to fly in do you have any idea how, ex- I'm like, I, w- I mean, I was 15 years into my career before I had a set with a door that would open and close. Yeah. I just thought like a lesbian would never even bother. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a really great excuse to never produce the play, which nobody wants to produce lesbian work anyway, but mm. I just, the, that entitlement.
2: Mm.
1: No, no, that has to happen. Mm-hmm. And the expense of that—the const- every night the ceiling breaks—and flying, flying mm-hmm. people in—you've got to have somebody. It's insurance. I mean, the whole thing. And I just feel like um, I felt angry. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like uh, I. I. I had to just know I'm writing for bare stage, broad daylight because I'm writing for lesbians and we don't have theaters um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Gay men do, but we don't. And I just would remind myself the greatest playwrights in the world wrote for bare stage, broad daylight. Don't worry. Mm. But I remember when I saw Angels in America, I was like, you privileged entitled? titles. Yeah. Um, are you even aware? Right. You know, and uh, I mean, I built my career on a one woman show with a stool and I brought the stool. So, <sighs> you know, but no, just that the difference. That's sure. a gay yeah. male playwright and a lesbian playwright coming up at the same time. And um, yeah. that, that just to me was that would be such a deal breaker. Anybody dramaturging me would be like, Carolyn, that's going to that's tens of thousands of dollars. You can't right. put that in your play, not a first play. Mm but it was gay men. It was AIDS. It was like, Oh, we can get backers for this. Mm. And, uh, I'm like, well, I'm writing about sexual survivors and every woman I know, Mm. I I would say it was raids, rape, assault, incest, discrimination, and sexism. We all had raids, but we couldn't leverage that kind of money because we were women, Mm. but it was, um,
0: yeah. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't actually like, wow, I'm having, I'm doing a lot of, uh, Re, <laughs> reanalyzing a lot of. Um... But
1: don't think don't think that his ability to leverage that ceiling in that flying equipment is divorced from the way he portrays women in that play. True, there's a connection. True, you know there's a connection. True, true. If true. he put a big empowered uh, dyke at the center of his story, and in you know, another musical with a a, a butch butchy lesbian um, fun home. But when I saw Fun Home, and and I love the graphic novel. I was mm-hmm. on a committee that put it up for a National Book Award. I was all about that. But when I saw that, I'm like, well, it's really a gay male narrative.
2: Hmm.
1: People are like, oh, yeah, there's a lesbian play. I'm like, they leverage the money. Yeah, It's about a gay dad who suicides. Yeah. That's, I, I just felt like I, I you know, I... I just suspect it would not have gotten production if it hadn't had an equally powerful, and there are many people who see it and say it's a gay gay father's story. Mm -hmm. They don't even see it as a lesbian story. Right. Um, Yeah, so that's frustrating for me because I don't put men in my plays. And I'm Mm. like, yeah, let's see how far Fun Home would have gotten if it wasn't about a father. Mm -hmm. And more than that, a pedophile, and that gets sentimentalized enormously. Right. Uh, right. it's like a footnote the story is infidelity mm-hmm. and it's like no that's its own story. Mm-hmm. this is a story about criminal sexual assault on multiple children mm-hmm. This is you know um it's right. like right. this is the Larry Nasser story this is that Sandusky story mm-hmm. this is and that is not dealt with it's like um no, it's the mostly the betrayal of the family's trust. I'm like, Nope. And I came from a family where there was um, criminal sexual behavior. And you don't apply a model like that. Mm-mm. Like, Daddy, can you see me? Or it's like, as soon as it's criminal assault, you have to do some serious things in your brain. Yeah. You have to look at all that you thought you knew, or the, all the sentiment. And you just have to tell yourself that's not appropriate anymore, mm-hmm. you know, but I, yeah, I, that play, um, survivors have a really hard time with that play because it sentimentalizes and is very reductive, diminishes. Interesting. The big thing is the betrayal of the wife and she has a whole number about it. Oh, and some of them were children by the but footnote footnote. Yeah. To me, it's <laughs> like, I'm married to a criminal uh, forget the, forget adultery. I, I'm married ah. to a, a monster. That's yeah. what, that is the story. Um, and there was never a thought of re- let's report him to the police. Yeah. Let's divorce him. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. all not have anything to do with him. Nothing. Yeah. It was, it was the kind of the dysfunctional American dramedy. And I'm like, no, mm-hmm. it's a story that centers a pedophile wow Uh, but again talking about the archetypes and where is the survivor's perspective on that Um, Mm. and i'm not saying that Bechtel's take on him yes it's her father and she's not getting help with it and this is her when you write an autobiography you get to sentimentalize your perpetrator because that's real. You know right. the fusion with the perpetrator, all that—that's real. But when you put it on the stage, like this is the way we should all frame it, that is—I I had that same issue with how I learned to drive. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, well, you know, that part of him was gross, but he taught me to drive. I, I'm just—I just—I feel like we we need to help our audiences move to late stage recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it, it is confusing when parts of these pedophiles and predators, I'm sure Sandusky did awesome coaching sometimes when he wasn't raping. Right. You have right. to, Larry Nasser may have been a good doctor in some regard, somewhere, somehow with some patients, but you just, you, you, you know, yeah. you
0: can't, yeah.
1: you don't put those in the balance with mm-mm, it. Mm-mm. You know?
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I, I, Hmm. Yeah. And it, and it also comes down to, you know, you, you said you don't write um, men in your place because you're focusing on the women that you're talking about. I mean, Um, I will,
1: I will sometimes if that's part of the woman's story, but no, I'm not interested. But um, it
0: is, you know, it, it, no one bats an eye when it's a play. That's all men. mm Mm-hmm. But as soon as you say I'm doing a play, it's all women. Everyone's like crazy about it. It even makes me think about um, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with mm-hmm. they were when they were like, when will enough women on the Supreme oh, Court yeah. Justice be enough? And she said, when there's nine, because nobody yeah. cared mm-hmm. that there have been nine men forever. And as yeah. soon as I say that we want nine women, apparently that's not allowed anymore. Uh, like an entire yeah, one.
1: But it's not just gender. I mean, I remember when uh, Lorraine Hansberry with *Raisin in the Sun*, and it's an all black play. And um, but there's one white person who's coming from a neighborhood association to try and talk them out of. Can I buy back your house? Because mm-hmm. we didn't realize you're black. Big mistake. Um, and I remember. I can't remember. Oh, what was his name? It was a very famous interviewer all he wanted to talk about was her race, racism in that the only white person in the play was this reprehensible neighborhood association person. And I'm like, again, it was like, Nellie, I watched your drawers the whole time. I'm like, seriously, that's all you saw? <laughs> but but it was like the shock of like, you're not, I this isn't about me. Yeah. <laughs> What are you doing? Do you realize there's nothing here that I can access? Yeah, I'm not seeing a positive reflection of myself in this play at all. And she's like, "Welcome to the black world." Really? I, Honestly. Oh, but but she's such. She is. You can just see like she's just holding it together. It's mm-hmm. just like watching um, Anita in those hearings. It's like you can just see the int- that fuck you. You total dick. You <laughs> and just like. Uh huh.
0: Like, and she just kept tearing it back.
1: to This is about housing discrimination. And But the only white person in the, I um, mean, she's, she just keeps going back to the social justice issue. Like I'm going to pretend I, I didn't hear that or whatever, but I just thought, oh my God, what self-control? I mean, the insanity of it. Right. But right. I often, you know, that's a kind of thing like, well, do you not know any nice men? It's like, this is the story that I'm telling here. I'm kind of doing the Lorraine thing. I'm like, but what about the man? And in the, in the second act, you'll notice that, you know, I'm just like, just, I'm going to interview myself <laughs> in my head and just answer the questions I wish you were asking. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. but I think it's the same thing. It's like a, you know, when colonized colonized people begin to tell their own stories, that's the immediate pushback is, mm-hmm. uh, Mm-hmm. Where's all the good white people? Don't you know any good white people? And I'm like sitting here talking to you, buddy, kind of wondering if I do. Yeah. I, I, a, no, I, he was ruling her on her racism. It's astounding. It's, it's, but I just had so many experiences from men dealing with the gender politics that were mirroring that. Right. Um, it's, and you're yeah. just like, phew. yeah, they just can't sit through a story that centers women. Yeah. It's almost, they're having an existential crisis. I think I don't exist as I'm watching yeah. this play.
0: Well, yeah. it's also, I mean, it even makes me think about like um, like female superheroes and all that stuff. And it being like a a really incredibly strong, like, I don't know, like if, if Captain America were a woman and everyone's like, oh, like, okay, Black Panther in the comics actually ends up being, a woman after um the anyway but I didn't know that yeah so it's one of the comics actually comic books are really really well I mean they run the gambit as far as representation and I thought the film Black Panther was a revolution I mean not just racially
1: but the roles for women it Mm -hmm. was like They were modeling a level of equality that I just don't even try for. His warriors
0: were women. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And the respect that was shown to him the scientists, the top scientists, Mm -hmm. one of um... them
0: ends up being Black Panther, one of the warrior women, at least in the comics. And so what's interesting is people who don't actually really know where all the roots of these comics come from. There's even branches of Spider-Man that are women. There's all kinds of these alternate realities and wow, really wonderful. amazing characters that aren't being made into films because they're not about big strong men. And it's funny because as soon as they the the film industry tries to bring those characters, the general public who knows nothing about the actual basis of these comic books, like this story has already been written. It already exists. This isn't just a fad yeah. of people bring being like women could be powerful no this is actually these comics have existed yeah. like as far as uh, specifically in this like let's say like marble. i did not know that <laughs> i mean i really didn't there's um, even yeah. there's so you know deadpool the uh yeah, yeah. okay there's a female equivalent basically <laughs> really? yeah. oh, my her God. name is gwenpool they're actually not related to each other but her name is gwenpool she's a She's freaking amazing. She's hilarious. She's an anti-hero. She breaks the fourth wall all the time making crazy jokes. And it's it's the same style of of tomfoolery if you will, you know? It's that, but for whatever reason one is getting picked over the other. Though I will say Deadpool did take Ryan Reynolds many a decade to get them to produce it but I digress it's something where it comes back down to people are like you can't have females be strong and it's like you know that these have already existed like these are real and you're
1: I think it's about the power of the stage because in other art forms like um women in the visual arts and women in music and um even women novelists but i feel like that in terms of the roles available for women mm-hmm. there's just uh, in theater there's restrictions that have not existed in the world of novels for like right 40 50 years i'm yeah. like why is theater so incredibly retro around racial politics age gender and i think because it's really powerful in a way that some of these other art forms are not like the censorship mm-hmm. the need to censor so absolutely is just so intense in, right. in live theater. And, and that has really baffled me. It's like the women's movement. It really isn't until the last 10 years, I feel like feminism even caught up um, right. in theater. And it's still in its infancy um, from what I see. Um, so mm. that's kind of, um, yeah it's very it's weird because in all the other fields of the arts like you say with comic books we've been there for decades um mm-hmm. but then when they get translated into theater oh we can't do that and, you yeah know, which
0: is so weird because it, the theater community likes to think of itself as this really progressive entity and we are the you, we are you. quite the opposite like as i can as remember when when
1: driving miss daisy came out and i was just like Like, is this the 1930s? (laughs) And it got all these awards. And I was just like, you know, I mean, to me, it was like, it was Amos and Andy. And I just was like, am I crazy? I mean, whenever it was done, it was like the 1990s or something. But I was Mm. just like, no, come on. It's been 30 years since the Civil Rights Movement. I just couldn't. It was so sentimentalizing of just raw racism. um, But, you know, I just, I just like the things that happen on Broadway are just like, And revivals, Uh, revivals of just the worst, (laughs) the worst, like just things being revived that should never be revived.
0: Let it sleep. Let it go away. Pretty women.
1: Oh yeah. Let's make it a musical because that's going to make it all right. And that was just a few years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm like, pretty women. I mean, everybody knows that's just, I mean, how many young girls decided prostitution was like a real way to go? I mean, I just think that's a really harmful, Mm -hmm. utterly just terrible narrative.
0: Um, It is rather bizarre. And they, they tried, there are a couple of catchy tunes in it, but for the most part, I was like, why are we telling this story again? And it's already been told. It's already a weird story to tell in the first place. There's a whole lot of weirdness that surrounds the movie itself anyway, you know? And, and it's like, why, why is this the story that we decided was worth putting millions of dollars into? Like, why is it this one? And there were, they did write some really interesting, um, little uh, interwoven relationships amongst various people that I did enjoy. I was like, oh, I haven't. That's nice. Um, but for the most part, I was like, why is this the story that's being told? Why, why this one? Why this one? There are so many amazing Shows that are in the works that like deserve well, I think that type of of, I
1: just did a um I just did a panel with Melissa um Farley about prostitution and the Nordic model. I'm a big abolitionist, but you know in my industry it's a sweet charity. Best little whorehouse in Texas, um, pretty woman. Um, it's like um, there is again a real control of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, it can occasionally be bittersweet, like sweet charity. Hmm. But for the most part, um, I mean, you know, it has nothing to do with prostitution or prostituted women. And, and yet a lot of people draw their ideas about it as sex positive. I can't think of anything more sex negative than selling uh your body selling access to your body for sex that you don't want to have you're not turned on you didn't choose this partner he usually is disgusting because for starts he's buying you so right Mm -hmm. there um i think i just feel like that my my industry has blood on its hands in terms of looking at um Mm. well you know just um sexual exploitation of women in general but specifically prostitution and um but any uh, you know like just doubt mm-hmm. about the priesthood scandal what play about the priesthood scandal is going to make it to broadway right one that's called doubt there's no doubt
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know there are Tens of thousands right. of victims, and they have the same narrative. It's it's like there's no doubt. And this is not a story of like, you know, sometimes children can be. And the same thing with when sexual harassment in the academy goes to Broadway. Oleana. Oh, it's those dykes over in women's studies that are brainwashing her into ruining mm-hmm. the school. It's like that is never yeah. the narrative. Right, And I right. know dozens of victims, and I dropped out for 10 years because of sexual harassment. It's like... Mm-hmm. No, that's never the narrative. Neither right. is doubt in the priesthood scandals. I mean this 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 perpetrator apologist, perpetrator protectionist narratives in theater are mm-hmm. just the norm. And mm-hmm. anyone who tries to challenge that and and what we get is how to, how I learned to drive or fun home and oh that bittersweet daddy
0: look at me. Mm-hmm. Oh I'm just Oof, it's like um right yeah it's more it's, it's more detrimental than it is um you know in aiding the it makes
1: you feel so invisible like what all these good daughters mm-hmm. like how i learned to drive and fun home there these are the mature women and they just kind of chalk it off like oh that's painful you know it's like you know, some of us have spent our lives trying to take our fathers to court and mm. uh, some of us have, you know, it's like um. It's, some of us have, you know, been that that was an upper middle class family, right? Some of us have just known we we're going to be disinherited mm. and done it. I was disinherited by my perpetrator mm. because I confronted and I feel like it disappears us because this is like this is if you're really mature, this is you just sentimentalize it. And it's like it's like it's a little quirk of his or, right. oh, you know, he, I don't think it was even personal. You know, there's just no advocacy and no understanding it's criminal Mm -hmm. assault. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is where, now Fun Home upset me so badly. I gave it a standing ovation because everybody in the theater stood up and clapped. And at that point I was so traumatized. I felt if I stayed in my seat, it was like everybody would look at me and no, I was an incest survivor. I, I just I just remember thinking, right. what's the easiest thing? Just stand and clap and go home and write a blog about this. And that's <laughs> what I did. That was all I could do. Right. I was terrified. When I saw that everybody in the theater adored that narrative, I knew they wouldn't want mine. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was my incest experience was wrong and bad. And my response to it was wrong and bad. Because this is the right way to deal with it, is to sentimentalize it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I just, um, I feel like we're we're really harming survivors, which is mm-hmm. to say, you know, one out of three of the women in the audience, when we do this, it's not a victimless crime. When we'd put up the best little whorehouse in Texas, you know, or pretty woman, or, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the, the, the rape narrative that made it to first-class production extremities was just obsessed with, Gosh, what will women ever do if they ever get their hands on the rapist? And I'm like, I know thousands of women who've been raped. Never once, never once do I ever remember that being a topic. Right. How am I going to stay alive another day? That's a topic. Right. What am I going to do with him if I ever get my hands on him? Never.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's not...
1: But so I look at that play and it went to first class and got funding. That's a who's who is interested in that question. Mm. The perpetrators. Yeah, that's who's going to fund that. Absolutely. That's a compelling issue. Oh, if they catch me, what will they do with me? Mm. I could care less. Raped women could give a shit. Mm -hmm. It just I know. Yeah. Kind of on a rant. See, you interview somebody (laughs) autistic. Well, I don't want to no, well, wrong, and it's I also, will go into rant, so.
0: <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm, I'm, a yes. to <laughs> I'm a yes and person. I'm like, yeah, this is where it's going. <laughs> well, but you but, know, that's true. You know, I'm talking some shit here. You know, this I know true. that's the other thing is that's the other thing. And I'm like, Ooh, spill the tea, spill the tea, bring yeah. it on because it's gotta be told, you know, nobody talks about it. Nobody's saying, and I'm, and I'm also like, I'm 70.
1: It's like, oh, what are you going to do? Not produce my plays? <laughs> oh, wait. That was the last 35
0: years, I think. Um, yeah. I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, it. You yeah. Know, yeah, just go ahead. Let it out. Forget. Let it out, you know? Yeah, and you also, you never know who it's going to resonate with and who's going to hear it as a call to action, you know? Like, it could light this conversation. Someone listening, could ha- it could light a big fat fire in their belly and they just hear it as a call to action. To I like- just
1: say all you survivors out there, especially early recovery, Heather and I, we see you. Mm-hmm. I've got the plays for you. You are not crazy. Mm-hmm. They are actively trying to appropriate the narrative in which you look like you're not doing your rape right. You know, I just want you to know, I see you. And if you are alive and sentient, you're doing it right. You're doing it really well. And don't doubt yourself, Mm. you know, you're doing, we see you and your truth is just too hot to handle. And sometimes too hot for you to handle. We need each other. Email me and I will send you any play you want free, the PDF of course, but yeah. (sighs) I see you. I see you. And you're not sick, bad, crazy or wrong. Mm -mm. And these perpetrators are criminals. Mm. I don't care if it's your grandfather, your uncle. Mm -hmm. Don't have Thanksgiving dinner with them. Mm. Don't. don't do anything for the sake of inheritance. It's Mm. not worth it. Been there. Done that. Not worth it. No regrets. Mm. You know, there are powers in the universe that will hold you up when you walk away from the hush money. You know, I see you, I see you and I love you mm. and you're going to make it.
0: Just yes. look
1: for your sisters, Heather and I, we, gotcha.
0: we got you. We got you gotcha. always. Yeah. I think a really good question to ask now would be what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received
1: early on. I think it was a guy who wrote for TV, but he's like, write something every day. Hmm doesn't matter what it is, write something every day. And then I have 26 years in Al-Anon because I live in a crazy world and every single piece of every single piece of Al-Anon wisdom is all like dog-eared. I mean, I have used the slogans, I have like, I'm really uncomfortable with what's going on right now because prior to recovery, it'd be like, what the fuck? Or I'd just be like, uh-huh, yeah, that's right. I think I'll just go home and blow my brains out. Yeah. But yeah, no, Al-Anon, um, Al-Anon, is the best advice. Every every single thing they ever taught me has been just mm. saved my life. But write something every day is not bad. And then you don't worry about the quality of it. It doesn't mm. matter. Yeah. Bad day, good day. Writing shit, writing genius doesn't matter. The main thing is you tick the box. Yeah. I wrote today.
0: And I bet, I bet that gives, you know, no matter the day, even like you said, I feel like maybe it helps to, I'm just kind of spitballing here. Maybe it helps to not be precious with your writing, right? Because if you're oh, writing God, yeah. something every day, you're not sitting there being like, you know, putting yourself in a position of I have to finish this chapter, whatever today, right? And then you become precious with your work if you're only able to produce work when you're in a particular mood. So then you become yeah. more precious with it. But if you're writing every day, well, it's like you know, it's you
1: know, what is it they say? It's uh, it's um, perspiration, one tenth of a percent inspiration, and the rest of it's perspiration. Yes. And- And I think that it is, it is a discipline, writing is a discipline. It's a discipline not to judge yourself. It's a Mm. discipline to just like, well, that sucked. But you know what, I'm going to put another two hours in tomorrow. And um, it'll change, it'll get better,
0: you know, and sometimes, you know, fresh eyes are so important too. like, maybe, you know, in the two hours you wrote, and you feel like everything was just terrible. But you know, you wrote, So then the next day you look at it and you can be like, you know, it wasn't all bad. Like this little nugget right here, I can use this. This is great. And then that was another piece of great advice from the same
1: guy who said, write Every day, he said, finish everything you write. And he gave an example of some screenplay idea he had, and he realized well into it. It was stupid. It was about robbing the world bank, but the world bank is kind of an abstract thing. It's not a building. And he just realized it sounds cool. And it is totally not. He, made, he forced himself to finish it knowing it didn't have the foundations. like let's build a mansion on a foundation that we know is going to make it fall apart. And he said, you learn not to ever do that again.
2: Mm.
1: And I thought, yes, and I have done that. I have made myself finish everything I started. Mm. It makes you it makes you much more careful when you start. Mm. If you know, I will make myself finish this. So you know you look at those foundations like I don't want to waste my time. Is this, is this got enough is this a robust enough foundation to build a play on mm-hmm. yeah I, I have written all the way to the end plays that I knew these are terrible I'm still going to make it the best I can but I know it's not a viable life form mm-hmm. um, that was great advice he says otherwise you write up to your obstacles and then you always go home mm-hmm. you don't ever clear them and I was that was brilliant and that takes doing a project that you know you won't like and is hopeless and seeing it through to the end you will learn things about yourself you'll learn things about your craft that sitting down and having a stroke of genius will never teach you mm-hmm. finish everything you start even when you real and sometimes i would realize it's hopeless and keep going and i actually was able to solve the problem way down the line but i was only still working because i have that discipline of right. i will finish everything i start
0: yeah. And then the other thing is you know it's like they say uh it's another form of like learning a new way to not do something. You know, failure is a construct. It's not real. Failure is just learning a way to not do it that way the next time
1: <laughs> you know that's it's a failure it's only stamped failure when you quit otherwise it's exactly. in progress mm-hmm. so you're exactly. the one who pulls the plug on it you get the you know if you don't ever quit on something it can
0: never be called a failure mm-hmm. wow. that's a little trick
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: so before we get to our last two questions is there anything else that you want to add anything we didn't talk about where we can find you and your work Anything oh, happen? well, um, Google Carol Engage Gage, G-A-G-E,
1: it's www.carolengage.com. My catalog is online. And if you cite this interview, I will send you anything that you ask, book or play, on request as a PDF. Um, but you can order everything that I've written as a paperback, and they're all everywhere. They're on iBooks, they're on Amazon, they're on Kindle, they're Barnes & Noble, they're... Um, you know, but you can buy directly from my web storefront and I get more money. Paperback, download the PDF ebook, and then a Kindle. So all kinds of ways to read the work.
0: Perfect. I love that. Well, I ask the same last two questions to everyone that comes through the podcast. First, what is your second favorite color and why?
1: Oh, um, brown. And it's kind of paired with the first, which is blue. And I think it's Mm. like, uh, brown to me is, um, it's not as, you know, blue is my favorite. But the brown with the blue, um, brown is really earth grounding, Mm. um, comforting, it feels warm. I love a really rich brown with kind of red tints to it. Just, uh, Mm. I love brown. Brown is beautiful that's so on that day when the ocean is such a pretty color and the brown of the shores and the rocks uh, yeah brown and blue are just can't be beat
0: oh my goodness you know i think you might you might be the first to say brown and last what in your opinion is the best part of being a woman oh
1: sisterhood Mm -hmm. um just the secret language of Females. I, um, you know, because I toured for so long just in women's communities, communities mm-hmm. of women, and the way that women talk when um, they're, we're among ourselves, um, just the, I love being a sister mm-hmm. in a sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Um, And that really didn't happen until the women's movement. And it changed. So Grace Paley said, when everything changed, everything Mm. changed so fast. Mm. Um, Yeah, and I found my voice, I found my people, I found my tribe, I found my narratives. Mm. Um, I found my history, which was deeply buried. I love being, um, I love being lesbian. I love being a tribe of lesbian. And I love um, being an autistic woman diagnosed late in life. That's a particular Mm -hmm. identity. And I love being um, in communities of survivors. I feel like we see the world differently.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And um, the creativity and the resourcefulness and the resilience of survivors is just a constant source of inspiration to me. And writing for survivors is the greatest privilege I can ever imagine. yeah so that's that is the best part for sure wow sisterhood
0: i love that and that's so true and i think it's also important i love that you said um that you know you really found your voice you know who you found deeper understanding of who you are especially as you discovered more things about yourself and your past and you know, what you wanted to do with that information in moving forward as a survivor. I think that just makes so, so much of what you do even more powerful. Like you're already doing amazing work. I, I just so love mm-hmm. the, the intent and the message behind, you know, just your mission as a playwright, as a creative, as a person. And um, it's so deeply aligns with everything that we're doing over here, which is another big reason that I was like, Oh my God, we have to have her on the show. This is perfect. But you know, it's, I, I love that you said that it, it can happen later in life. You know, if you still don't know who you are or what you're about and you're 30 something, 40 something, whatever, it doesn't matter. You still have time to find your people, to find who you are, to find what you want to do, what you love doing, like what is the point of what you're doing, you know? And I think that's beautiful. That's so important because it's never too late for anything ever. It's not. (laughs) It's very true. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for this amazing conversation. I feel like we talked about so many things that don't get talked about. And I, and I love being able to gain new perspective and insights into really what goes into writing the way you write and why you do it and how you do it. And thank you for taking the time out of your day to, to sit down and have this conversation. Oh, it, it was a privilege. So thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing it online and thank you her for tuning in again i hope you guys loved this one as much as i did tell all your friends follow subscribe you know the drill you can follow us on our social medias we are all over the place we are on instagram at women of her story podcast we're on twitter at the her story pod We're on TikTok at Women of Her Story. We have our website at ofherstory.com and you guys know you can find us on our anchor platform for all that other good stuff. Until next week, be safe, stay healthy and show the world what you're made of.